The following program contains cleavage and questionable content. If you don't have a sense of humor, turn it off now. You're listening to The Nicole Sandler Show. Sitting in for the vacationing Nicole is Brittany Summers on NicoleSandler.com and the Progressive Voices Network. The Florida Sound! It's Boca Brit Summers from Florida to you. I don't find wafers very filling I don't cut holes in my sheets I don't wrap the filling That's Bubba Bison to me And I don't care how goddamn religious you are I'm a secular humanist pig I'm a Secular humanist being I don't need a crutch Or to join a private club I'm a secular humanist being I'm not a fairy tale believer Mass. The lemming stare and point their finger Where they can kiss my ass And I won't confess to a man who wears a dress I'm a secular humanist pig I'm a secular humanist pig That's for losers, ex-abusers Drugs and telemarketing ex-cons I'm a secular humanist pig growing Secular humanist pig growing Secular humanist pig growing I'm a secular humanist pig Yes, I am. This is Brittany Summers filling in. On the NicoleSandlerShow.com and Progressive Voices Network, I guess. I'm supposed to be anyway. Now listen, uh, as opposed to (laughs) what happened yesterday, if the video is not running and the YouTube does not work, because it does not like me. If YouTube's not on, we're going to roll with audio because that is work that's functioning properly. Because I don't want to mess this show up because i got some very highly valued guests today. Uh, Starting with, and and this... (laughs) I'm so happy he's going to be with us. I, I want to introduce him properly, so let me get him on the phone here. And uh, you may be familiar with some of his work. Of course, his work goes back to the mid-60s. And uh, he was a songwriter and bass player for The Love and Spoonful. Hello. Uh, Steve, Oh, uh, um, I'm in the middle of uh, giving you your intro, so if you... <laughs> Give me oh, I'm good to go. I'm going to try and get a headset on while you were talking so it doesn't disconnect here. Okay, well, I'm just going to set the phone down for one second. Okay, <laughs> this is the songwriter and bassist. Hello, for the love can you hear me? I can hear you fine, Steve. Turn your turn your radio, radio down. Good. Okay. Good oh, that's better. And yeah, he took good. part uh, in the early stages of the Mamas and the Papas, then called the Mugwumps. 
And also, uh, you may not know, he scored uh, two hit movies. And author of the book, Hotter Than a Match Head. And I'd like to welcome to the show with, with us right now, Steve Boone. Hey, Boca, how you doing, buddy? <laughs> it's been so long. Last time you yes, saw me, I... Huh? What's I that? can't believe that it's been this long, because it doesn't seem like that long ago that we were hanging out and, uh, you know, the great programming that you guys were doing down there in, back in the 90s. I just thought that was one of the best radio stuff that I heard ever, and so I'm really glad to be reconnected with you. I am so, so glad to hear that. And you flattered me back then, because I remember, I think... I was brought to your attention when Neil was playing the uh, Panthers comedy bits. Uh, that they, it was 1997. That's when we first met. And, yes, uh, it is. You know, it, it seems like it was just a while ago, but man, it's hard to believe that's 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah, it goes fast. And uh, it, shame on me. I should have been in, more in touch, but right around that time, I moved to New York, and I lost touch with everybody. <clears throat> I eventually moved back to prestigious Boca Raton, and uh, it just never clicked. I think you moved somewhere else in Florida. Yes, in, in fact, I moved up the coast to Flagler, well, to St. Augustine first, where I grew up. Uh, and as a kid, I went to school in St. Augustine. And then uh, in 2005, we moved to uh, North Carolina to build a recording studio up there in the coastal plains uh, near Wilmington. But that was right before the giant catastrophe hit the market and it was unable to get financed and to finish that project so we moved back to florida again in 2010 and i ain't leaving again <laughs> <laughs> but you're from long island correct Originally. yeah well actually i was born in north carolina my dad was in the marine corps and so i was born at camp lejeune and he and his father were in the hotel business both in north carolina and long island so at one point after St. Augustine in 1958, I did move up to Long Island, finished my last three years of high school there, and then launched the Spoonful career shortly thereafter. But that was at the, the, the glory days of the village, Greenwich Village, correct? That's when Yeah, you know, yeah. It, it's, it's hard to, uh, you know, I speak to my partner, Joe Butler, who still lives in the village, and we, we swap stories, but it's like he tells me how it is nowadays, and it hasn't. You know, the main village, McDougal and West Third, that hasn't changed much. But uh, what I call the suburbs, which is the West Village, the East Village, and uh, those areas have become almost like Boca. Yeah, <laughs> now they have. <clears throat> they gentrify it. Very expensive, and uh, and uh, it's been really what they call gentrified. So it's, you wouldn't recognize the East Village nowadays. And so it's the same, but it's different. Let's put it that way. <laughs> They're gentrifying uh, Williams, Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Uh, yeah. Well, that, yeah, yeah. that actually uh, is uh, unbelievable renaissance over across the river in Brooklyn. You know, my uh, my father-in-law is from, well, he's passed away now, but was a fireman in Brooklyn. And to hear stories of him telling the neighborhood. And then, of course, starting in the early part of this century it started getting a renaissance and now it's like one of the you know hoity-toity areas of, of new york city it is still good food you can't get a bad meal there huh <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh listen for those in the audience who are, are too young to know and probably uh still young enough to have uh, recognize that honda commercial thank you honda 
Uh, All right. Here's a little collage of Steve's work. Is this on? Yeah. You're still on. You can talk over it. Okay. I, I wasn't quite sure if we were going to uh, to music or something. No, no, no. We, we can talk over it. You're in uh, large part responsible for these great, great tunes. Well, you know, are, are you... Uh, are you still doing this every day, or is this sort of a fill-in? That's the impression I got. I'm filling in uh, for Nicole Sandler, who was uh, vacationing in Mexico this week. Uh, but I, I see. I, I have a regular show every Sunday, and of course it's uh, uploaded, so you can hear it anytime. And uh, for that, I, we could do a whole hour on, on my show. Um, well, I'd love to do that, and you know, there's a really great local radio station here in Flagler Beach. It's a low-power station, just, you know, maybe, I don't know how many watts, but I uh, I might be doing a little once-every-two-week disc jockey show on that, too. Oh, really? Then we'll, I'll cross-promote it. That would be great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I should uh, mention to the audience again, and I did put it up on the YouTube, but it didn't come across. Uh, Steve is the author of a great book called Hotter Than a Matchhead. As it, as it would say in the, the lyric of the song. And uh, the stories in that book are just phenomenal. Uh, a lot of people aren't aware that you scored a Woody Allen film. Um, what's up, Tiger Lily? Yeah, well, you know, it's really odd that you mentioned it. A couple of weeks ago, there was a film festival here in Flagler County, and they aired the What's Up, Tiger Lily movie at part of the festival. And and they invited me to do a meet and greet in the lobby afterwards, and it was great. I, you know, that that movie had, you know, such a great history to it. And how it started out as a serious James Bond type uh, spy movie, and then <laughs> Woody got a hold of it and put his own dialogue on it. And it was such fun making that uh, soundtrack album. They gave us, you know, pretty much a clear signal to play anything that came into our heads watching the movie, and we did. And I thought it came out great. It did, and it held, it held up all this time. It's still funny to watch because it's an overdub of a Japanese movie. And uh, Woody Allen, it, if anybody hasn't seen it, I don't even know if it's available on Netflix or whatever, but look up What's Up, Tiger Lily uh, by Woody Allen. I thought it came out like 66 is when it came out. Yeah, it was, you know, and I think at the end of the day, uh, it's probably going to be one of those movies that, that gets aired over and over again because it's such an unusual take on how to how to make a <laughs> alternative spy movie. <laughs> it was really funny. I'll never forget one of the lines in there was "Take that, you Turkish taffy." That that stuck with me. Yeah, <laughs> what a memory you have. <laughs> well, half of it. I don't remember how to get YouTube to work, but other than that, yeah, that's it, true. That's YouTube is our memory. <laughs> but fear not, the audio's uh, flowing nicely. Uh, and because I, I don't video cam on my show, I really should and learn how, but uh, I'm, that part of this I'm not used to. And I wanted to ask you about, you worked with Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, you're a big boy now with, get this cast, ladies and gentlemen, Karen Black, Rip Torn, Geraldine Page, Julie Harris, Elizabeth Hartman, and my favorite, Michael Dunn, the original Dr. Loveless. And that was called, <laughs> yeah, you're a big boy now, but I, I must confess I've never seen that film. Well, you know something, I wouldn't say it was as funny or as good, I hate to use the word good, as What's Up Tiger Lily, but it was a different type of movie, and of course it was Francis Ford Coppola's first major movie, and we did play the soundtrack for that album, and, and I thought the best part of it was a song that John came up with where he played Mouth Harp, 
uh, called Amy's Theme. And, uh, and you know, there was a hit record from the uh, soundtrack called Darwin Be Home Soon. Mm-hmm. But I think Amy's Theme is one of those harmonica things that you hear it and you can almost imagine it in any circumstance or situation. So it was it was it was a fun thing to do and of course Francis Coppola turned out to be one of the greatest directors of our generation. But I think I had more fun doing the What's Up Tiger Lily album because <laughs> we had more freedom to to be creative and come up with whatever sort of inspired us by watching short rushes from the movie. It's always a lot more fun. It was, it was fun doing both of them. I just want to get that in there. When they leave the talent alone, it's always more fun. Yeah, well, you know, uh, Rip Torn and Elizabeth Hartman in particular stand out in my mind because they have reappeared over the years in other films that I, you know, I'm not familiar with, and I'll come across them, say, just watching TV at night. <laughs> and it's like, oh my gosh, I remember that. You know, it's you, you get certain things spur your memory, and and late night movies are one of those things. Why wow, it's been so long? This, this is great, and I feel always, oh, you autographed all my Love and Spoonful albums. And and well, you uh, know, I've got. Yeah. I'm going to come down and and visit. You know, now that I know you're back in the state again, and and uh, and happening on the radio, I'm going to make a trip. I come down to South Florida frequently. And uh, I'll make a point of just hooking up and, uh, you know, we'll sit down and have a chat session and get caught up and all that good oh, stuff. Oh, that'd be wonderful. We could go to the to the Moonlight <laughs> off, off Sheridan. I'm sure you remember that place. Yes, indeed. Absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, I've still got CDs of Best of Neil and all sorts of stuff with your material on it. And, and to this day, Lena, my wife, and I just get such a big kick out of it it brings back those glory what i call the glory days of radio in south florida and uh really i know that speaking for myself i like i said earlier in the show i thought that was one of the premier eras of of radio uh, for just freewheeling and great topics and and great talent it was really a good thing so i'm just glad i was was around for that particular era well so was i of course, I was yeah. uh, I was getting a lot of uh, change dropped in the musician's hat at the time. So yeah, well, you know, change happens. Oh <laughs> uh, well, I meant child money change, the, not the obvious. Oh change. yeah, well that happens too. <laughs> <laughs> you must have been blown away when I contacted you on Facebook because the last time you saw me, I looked like Charlie Callis on acid. So. Well, you know, it took me a second to let it sink in, and then I went, well, it's the first three letters are the same, so... It, <laughs> you it, put two it, and two together, that's great. So I, I figured, yeah, it's got to be, and you know, hey, listen, I thought it was great, so in, in any event, you look lovely, darling. Well, thank you. <laughs> I can't tell if I'm on uh, the tube or not, but I don't care. I'm having a great time talking with you. Um... This might bring back some memories, and I should uh, give a backstory to the audience, but this is how Steve and I first met. Back in 97, there was a new hockey team in South Florida called the Panthers, and I was fed the material, because what I know about sports, you could fill a thimble. And <laughs> one of the, there was one other time that this happened to me, and I'll tell you when, when this is over. Um, uh, I did a parody 
that the actual artist enjoyed. Usually you get a lawsuit over that, so <laughs> it was a break, I guess. Uh, but perhaps you'll remember this. I, I dug this out of the archives just last night. It's from 1997. And if the audience, if it doesn't make any sense, well, it's not supposed to anymore. Does Jeff Rimmer kiss Chris Wells behind? Does he have a reason for defending this guy? He's constantly falling and the puck he can't find. Does Jeff Rimmer kiss Chris Wells behind? And ever since they traded school, they've been playing real crummy. The reason they gave was to save the team money. And we know that Chris may be a pretty nice guy. But he fumbles and he stumbles and trips on the blue line. Is this the best that Brian Murray can find? The team's in a coma and they'll never say why. Defending it's easy if you lie all the time. Does Jeff Rimmer kiss Chris Wells behind? Okay, no one understood that, but just the same. Well, you know something, that's it, but what it inspired in me was the fact that you have such a professional touch, and I mean that seriously, it's like when you do parodies, you know, it's very easy to spot the, the chaff from the wheat, so to speak, but your stuff always, whenever I would hear it, I, it had your signature, so I knew it was one of your bits, and it just always sounds so well produced and so well put together that it would be hard, even if you were the subject of the parody, to not like it. So, Thank uh, you. Thank yes, you. that brought back memories instantly. It's, uh, well, I'll just say one other thing. This is, uh, I want to interview you, not me, but, but it's interesting because I did, uh, and you were listening back then, during the Dole Clinton campaign in 96, I did yes. uh, uh, to uh, Rick D's Disco Duck, I did uh, Disco Bob. And that got out to Rick D's, and he loved it. And that got me uh, a, a gig with uh, Tom Chauvin in New York, and eventually I, I flourished and went, moved up there, just based on that. Well, so. and deservedly so, I think, because, you know, it's, it's, that's a hard thing to do is, is parody. And, uh, you know, I'm, I now do much of the public speaking for the band, and I used to be so terrified of even looking out into the audience but one of the things that got me over it was was not only listening to, to Neil and the programming of that era, but I started to do volunteer work as a tour guide for the Historical Society on the water taxis down there. Oh. And having your audience, 30 or so people, right in front of you, literally, either but you get over was, your stage was not only listening, listening to, to Neil and the programming of that era, programming that you guys it was just great it really inspired me yeah in you would know this now i, I was going to talk with it it didn't happen but howard kalen was supposed to come on the show and uh he spoke about this the first time you hear your song on the radio when when you're in another car and your car next to you is listening to you that must have happened to you guys back in the day and how did that feel well, it, you know, it did in the oddest way. When we were going on our first tour supporting Do You Believe in Magic, uh, we got picked up in San Francisco at the airport, and a big old Cadillac convertible by the local promotion agent for the record company. And I don't know if this was 
spontaneous because there were no cell phones in this day, but as we got into the car and pulled out of the parking lot with the top down, the second song that came on the radio was Do You Believe in Magic? And it was like, <laughs> how can that possibly be? But it was pretty darn cool, i got to tell you that. It's a real mind-blower, and you're hearing other people enjoy your work, but you don't really think about it, and then it just happens. It's, it's a wonderful feeling. Yeah, and and the way it happened, it was like, this. somebody cooked this up, but how could they? Nobody knew what time we were getting picked up, and there were no cell phones. There was no way for the guy to call the radio station and say, play it now. So it just was, I guess, cosmic. <laughs> <laughs> it probably was. But back then, anyway. No, but they did use phone calls for requests, which is more accurate than what they do, what they've been doing. Um, yes. I wanted to get to uh, the, uh, okay, this is in your book about Karma Sutra. And uh, Artie ripped yeah. off. <laughs> well, you know, those guys were some characters. The three of them that uh, that ran the, or owned the record label, uh, Artie Ripp, Jaime Rye, and Phil Steinberg. Mm-hmm. You know, they were all, they were from Brooklyn. I believe all three of them were from Brooklyn. And they definitely had the Brooklyn swagger. <laughs> yeah, I know. And, and you know, look, they they got our records on the air, and that was the thing. We were offered uh, a deal by Electra Records mm-hmm. that was the far classier label that, you know, Jack Holtzman, the owner of it, loved the band and really wanted to sign us, but we didn't think he could get 45 RPM records on the air. And I think we were right in 1965, but Artie Rip and company, they got them on the air just like they said they would. So they delivered the goods for us. Yeah. It's an interesting thing because even though most of the labels back then were mobbed up and uh, the corporate music industry was just as corrupt and greedy as it is now, but not so extreme. And even like the mob guys, they appreciated the product that that they were selling. That's right. You just hit a really good nail on the head there, uh, Britt. And uh, the thing that that really made me like those three guys is they would come to our recording sessions and they would sit in there and they'd listen to the sessions and they really liked the music. They weren't just guys out there schlepping the records around and making deals and all that. They actually were fans of the music and that made a big impression on me. I liked that. Yeah, we don't have that anymore. That's what's lacking. It's all accounting, bean counters, and uh, nobody who appreciates the art form. And you could say some of the biggest pricks ever to run a uh, a, a, a record label, like uh, I forgot who it was with Mercury. And then the roulette, uh, he was a big crook. Um, what, a Mar- I know Morris that Levy, Irv so. Green was the president of uh, Mercury at yeah. the time, because I... I produced an album after the Spoonful for a band called the Ox Pedals. He actually was a cool guy. He also came out when he signed that band to his label. Mm-hmm. You know, he was a, a kind of a character right out of the movies, you know, with a thick accent. But he came out to their house out in New Jersey and sat through about an hour and a half of live performance in the living room. And, uh, and I appreciated that. That was something you didn't see many record execs do. Yeah. Well, they don't do that at all anymore. Now they eat shrimp and uh, (laughs) see what's ever cheap to put out there. They don't even have record execs anymore. They don't have A&R. A&R people are gone, too. It's my Yeah. Yeah. It's you know it's a changed business now and 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 it's gone from I think from uh, emphasizing uh, long play albums to pretty much people are just hitting the air with singles. 
mm-hmm. and uh, then going out and touring. From what I understand, that most of the big money nowadays is being made in touring and not in record sales. So it's a crazy business. Yeah, someone posted in the chat room, Tommy James, oh, there's a book. Oh, what he right. went through with roulette. That Morris Levy. By the way, in The Sopranos, if you ever, uh, anybody's seen that, the Hesh was modeled after Morris Levy in that show. Oh, is that right? Yeah. I guess that makes sense. Yeah, you know, and God, his name appears just about in probably dozens of books about the era of the music business. He, you know, he even had his fingers in our operation through uh, Charlie Koppelman, I believe. I'm not certain about that, but I know his name pops up everywhere. So, Well, I, I, somehow I like to attribute <clears throat> the mob-owned labels back then to mob-owned restaurants. You, you don't care what's going on. The food's always going to be great. You know, you don't, yes, you'll never get I, disappointed. I'll buy that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, oh, you don't want to go in there. It's mob-owned. What, are you kidding? You know you're going to get the best. So, because yeah, the, these mob these mob labels had the best talent on them, yeah, including yep. you. Uh, real quick about the monkeys, you were almost one. <laughs> yes, as a matter of fact, right after Magic was a hit, and just before you didn't have to be so nice was about to come out as our second release. Uh, we got a call from our manager to meet him at an office building in Manhattan, and these two producers came in and pitched us on the idea they had for a TV show and. And we were intrigued, you know, if you get yourself on a, on a network television show in 1965, 66, you were going to do all right. But there was two caveats. Mm-hmm. One of them was they wanted to bring in their team of songwriters. And number two, and this was the deal breaker for us, they wanted us to change our name to the Monkees. And I didn't have a problem with the name itself, but we had already established the Love and Spoonful as the name of a hit band, and and all four of us thought, and I think correctly so, that that you know changing horses in midstream is probably not a good idea, mm-hmm. and uh, so we turned them down. We uh, listened to their proposal, and then I understand that after we turned them down, they went to the open casting call, and uh, that's how they assembled the team that did become the monkeys. So, but you know, also another odd thing, Jerry Esther, who. Uh, replaced Zolly in the band in 1967, mm-hmm. and then is still in the band today, was also asked to be in the Monkees, and he turned it down for uh, reasons that I'm not quite sure of. But So there's a lot of connection with the Monkees in my world. Yeah, if they gave it further thought back then, they might have put a Love and Spoonful show on a competing network. But I guess they didn't yeah, consider <laughs> That would have been interesting. You know, it's funny, I... I'm uh, in the process of scanning a lot of my old photographs and to keep them stored digitally. And I'm looking at one right now of Davy Jones sitting in Athens, uh, Greece, when we did a show with him in 1991. Mm-hmm. I guess it was New Year's 92, actually. But uh, after the show, the next day, the uh, promoter took all the bands who were on the show around to a uh, a great feast and driving us around Athens. And I got this picture. I'm looking at it right now of Davy Jones sitting there up in the uh, seats at a, an outdoor uh, festival arena. Or what something what like a that. sweet, sweet man he was. What a great guy. He even liked me. Uh, <laughs> he, he was just the nicest man and, yeah. and always very gracious. It was a pleasure to work with him and, uh, and a very super talented guy to boot. So, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. 
He was in a, uh, the last thing he did was a, the worst Jackie Mason movie you can imagine. I was in it too. I don't even want to mention. Oh, I didn't. Oh, I didn't know that. I think they took it out to the desert and buried it somewhere because I haven't seen it. It was that bad. But yeah, uh, I'm sure I would hear about it if it was. <laughs> it was awful. Out, out. Yeah. You know. Well, you want to tell you're still it's, touring, right? You're touring with the original members, most of them, anyway. We're, you mean the Spoonful? Yeah. Yeah, the only one who's not with us from the 67 lineup is John Sebastian. And we asked him, you know, I, I stay in kind of close touch with John, and uh, he just didn't want to be part of the band reforming. And, and as a second to that, he also was much more comfortable going out as a solo uh, and just taking his guitar and one amplifier and his road manager, and he hits the road. And, and you know, he does a great show. Right before my book came out, mm-hmm. he did a, a benefit down in Claremont, Florida. Uh, and I heard about it. I called him up. I said, John, why don't I bring my bass down, and we'll have a duo instead of just you. He said, that's great. And so we just went over the song list. We didn't even get a chance to rehearse because he changed the keys on a couple of the songs, but my publisher, by coincidence, had heard about it too, and he came to the show, and uh, he's a Canadian, but a huge fan of music, and he said that was one of the neatest concerts he'd ever been to, and uh, he was saying that genuinely. It wasn't just a you know, a backslap, and uh, I thought it was great, too. It was really fun, just the bass guitar and bass and John singing and talking, and then uh, I videoed the whole, actually, my wife, Lena, videoed the whole show, and one of these days I'm going to assemble it into a 15 or 20-minute piece, and, uh, and uh, maybe maybe it'll be a YouTube video. Who knows? <laughs> well, I look forward to that. And I want to I want to thank you for joining. Oh, one other thing. Uh, when... Um, Zally uh, quit the band. He opened a restaurant, and it was called Shea Piggy. <laughs> I was saving that. And I, for you. I, I tell you something. You ask anybody from Toronto or Kingston, or or maybe even Montreal, if they'd ever heard of Shea Piggy, and I'll guarantee you, nine out of ten of them will say yes, indeed. That restaurant, and it still is, even though he's passed away, his daughter's still running it in mm-hmm. Kingston, Ontario. It's a fabulous. What a great sponsor that would be. Shane Piggy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I got to get you back on my show. Uh, uh, Nicole will be back next week, and she probably would like to have you on as well, but I know for sure I'm going to give you a whole hour on mine. So it's so well, nice. I would, lo- I would <laughs> love that, Britt. And what I'll do is uh, I have a pretty open schedule until the end of the month. We have a tour, I mean, a tour, a cruise that we're the Flower Power Cruise that we're on. Uh, but until February 27th, I'm around, so I'll I'll fire off an email with my schedule on it and see if if whatever works for you and works for me. I would love to do it, man. It would be great to have a little time to prepare for it and do a great show. Yes, it would. And thank you so much again for joining us today, Stephen. Yeah, we're going to stay in touch, definitely. No more 17-year hiatuses. There you go. That's, that sounds like a plan to me. And, and my best to all of South Florida. I love it down there. All right, thank you. Steve Boone, everybody. And uh, we're going to, I'm going to go to a break. And coming up soon will be the, uh, will be the illustrious and prestigious Professor Harvey J.K. Yes, he's even going to talk to me. Uh, well, that was great talking to Steve Boone. It's, uh, you ever uh, encountered that? Uh, an old friend you haven't spoken to in 100,000 years? And, oh, how about that? Uh, 
Oh, yeah, the YouTube is working. I did something right. I must have put my toe in the right hole. Anyway, we're going to... Um, we're going to go to a break. Look, I'm even getting the uh, YouTube to work with the cards and everything. It's like uh, I'm a real uh, professional over here. Okay, real, real quick, we're going to go to a break so I can set up for Harvey JK. We'll be coming up in just a moment. You're listening to Boca Britney Summers sitting in for the vacationing Nicole Sandler on NicoleSandler.com and the Progressive Voices Network. Here in America, the word fact has a straightforward, rather obvious meaning. Truth, reality, something that actually exists. But we now find ourselves transplanted to a new odd country, Trumplandia. Here, the factuality of known facts is being called into question by the highest civil authority in the land, the White House. In fact, with all truths suddenly open to presidential reinterpretation, can we really say with confidence that the White House is actually white? Consider the Donald's furious tweet in January after actress Meryl Streep called him out for having mocked the physical disabilities of a reporter. I never mocked a disabled reporter, he snapped, even though millions saw him on TV and videos doing exactly that. This inconvenient fact led Kellyanne Conway, Trump's official White House explainer, to castigate reporters for misinterpreting Donnie's reality. You always want to go by what's coming out of his mouth rather than what's in his heart. Stranger yet, the Trumpster couldn't even control his convulsive ego on the solemn day of his inauguration. He claimed that the crowd he drew was the largest in history, despite obvious photographic and body count proof that his crowd was much smaller than the one drawn to Barack Obama's swearing in. Enraged by this fact, His Majesty the President sent his sad sack press secretary to scold reporters, citing a mess of statistics meant to, quote, prove that Trump's crowd was the biggest ever. Unfortunately, those numbers were quickly shown to be false, i.e. lies. This embarrassment brought out Chief Explainer Conway again, insisting that the bogus numbers tossed out by the White House were not falsehoods, but, quote, alternative facts. Welcome to the alternative universe of Trumplandia. This is Jim Hightower saying, is it time for the next presidential election yet? What do the corporate powers from Wall Street to Walmart have in common? I don't know. They hate the Hightower Lowdown. You can see why at www.hightowerlowdown.org. Well, where is he? Where is who? Where is Harvey? Oh, you mean Harvey J.K. Yeah, Harvey. Well, he's coming up right now on the Nicole Sandler Show. Harvey J.K., I am calling in. I know you're listening. I saw you in the chat room. I want to welcome to the show while he's looking for the telephone. Oh, Harvey, hi. Professor Harvey J.K. of Democracy and Justice Studies at University of, of the University of Wisconsin. Author of Fighting the Four Freez- Freezers. Fight... <laughs> Fighting the, I'm a little nervous because you're a professor and I'm just a silly person. Fighting the Four Freedoms, uh, Thomas Paine and the Promise of America, Are We Good Citizens, Why Do Ruling Classes Fear History, and uh, the professor just finished another book just as I was reading that introduction. Welcome to the show, uh, Harvey. <laughs> no, you called Steve Boone again. Oh, hi, Steve. Uh, I didn't change the number in the thing. 
Yeah, that's what I figured. But when you called the last time, I didn't want to just start talking. I didn't know if you're on the air or not, so I just hung it back up again. <laughs> okay. Well, it's great talking to you again. But I've got to get Harvey. Yeah, no, it was. You will hear from me, and I sent an email off this evening, just giving you an idea of my schedule and and time and all that stuff. Okay. Thank you. It was great hearing from you again. It was my pleasure, man. Great reconnecting too. Uh-huh. Harvey, J.K., I'm, uh, I apologize. I uh, didn't do the Skype right. And the reason I'm doing it on Skype is because I have some audio I want to play on the other computer. So here we go once again. Hopefully we'll contact... Uh, no, it's, it's, it, it refuses to obey. Okay, I think I got it, ladies and gentlemen. Because uh, the the Skype was my fault. I kept dialing it. I'm laughing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm really laughing. (laughs) Did you expect this? Did you expect it to be this uh, screwy? I mean... (laughs) Well, I was listening the whole time as you're... (laughs) You're futzing around. It was great. I I thought I was going to have to deposit another thirty-five cents. (laughs) Are we on air right now? I can't. I can't tell. Yes, we are. And I want to thank you. That's really good. Thank you so much. Because I was sending, you know, I was typing away on the chat line. You're hoping you were going to notice that you weren't speaking to me or calling me. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, not at all. And so you're a loving spoonful fan. You can see what a great guy Steve Boone is. That was fun. I mean, I, I'm funny. It's all the sort of, uh, it's just, it's just funny. I mean, I, I give it, remind me what exactly what the years that they were, they, they were starting out and sort of hitting the, the charts. It was that, was that late? That was late sixties, right? Or is it earlier even than that? It was <clears throat> to, to my understanding, they started out in Greenwich village in like the very early sixties, like 62, uh-huh. 63. And they were, uh, uh, Steve was working with, uh, the Mamas and the Papas, who weren't, uh-huh. they weren't called that back then. They were called the Mugwumps, uh-huh. which is what I refer to Republicans as these days, Mugwumps. What were, but, so, <laughs> that's really good. I mean, uh, if they started in the early 60s, I couldn't have been older than 12 years old. But I have this, I have this recollection of mid to late 60s when I was in high school years that they were just fabulous, and when I was in college as well. And, uh, in fact, in speaking of Greenwich Village, I also remember a group... You know that was the, the name was was great. The Fugs. You oh, know oh that? of course, the Fugs. They were at the CBGBs. Yeah. Right, and then um, as, as I noted on the chat thing, so I mean I wasn't deeply involved in music other than as a fan. I didn't play any instruments. I didn't sing. Well, I sang, but you know mostly in the shower. And um, <laughs> well, I was, but but I, I I was a fan of a group that was that was small. It was New York based. It was the Blues Project. Do you know? Does that name ring a bell? Yeah, it does. 
Yeah, and and I brought I, I I feel like I was ahead of my time when I was a senior in high school. Myself and some other people, we brought them out to our high school in New Jersey to perform, which was you know uh, that was unprecedented at that time. So I I wondered if I should have a career as a music producer, but I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> uh, I'm putting that on the list for tomorrow's pre-show music, the Fugs. Oh yeah, jeez, you know I, let, I they did it. I can't remember a lot. I mean, I wasn't prepared to talk about this stuff, but I, my mind, so my mind is racing about that. But it was really nice of you to play the fanfare for the common man. Um, I don't know if you had a chance to listen to the seven-minute uh, yes, uh, yes. podcast. Mm -hmm. that's, it's part of that series that Sarah Fishko up at WNYC in New York. And I, I, mean, I, I don't know if it's giving anything away or competing or anything, but I'll tell everyone that if they really want to listen to some great seven-minute podcasts, about 20th century music of all genres and it, its connection to politics and history and culture. They ought to go to WNYC and look for Fishco's Files and subscribe to the podcast. And, and I can tell you that I, I've discovered a whole new sort of listening pleasure before bed or waking up in the morning. And in fact, this morning at 5 a.m., I got notice that the Fanfare for the Common Man podcast had come through. And I, I got to hear myself waking up in the morning. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, you were on there, uh, and yeah, yeah. That, it's a great listen. Uh, they, it's it's tight. It could use a, a yeah, but but other than that, it's it's informative and it's reminiscent of the Studs Terkel interviews. I don't know if you you've heard of that. I, I I I was I didn't hear a lot of his stuff. So I, when I geez, he was still. I guess he was still alive at the time, and I was trying to bring him, yeah, obviously, and I was trying to bring him up here to the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay, where I'm a professor, mm -hmm. and, they, and, and he seemed really interested, but he, he, he wouldn't get on a plane, he said, mm -hmm. um, and there were no trains that ran from Chicago to Green Bay. They had already, you know, years before I ever came to Wisconsin, had finished uh, having any kind of uh, commuter or uh, passenger train up here. So I debated whether I should drive all the way to Chicago, which is, it would be like three to five, six hours, depending on the traffic around mm -hmm. Chicago, and bring him back. And he, w he was wonderful. Um, I, you know, he, it, was, it, it was the kind of thing that, that we're missing today because, so as, you know, obviously we're online radio, but you know, so much of radio today is just dominated by right-wing talk. Yeah, that's a sad. I was speaking about that yesterday, about the, uh, the billionaires that are the right are uh, falsely saying that uh, they're uh, financing the uh, progressive media. They're not giving us a nickel, and, and we got. That, that, they're yeah. claiming they're actually underwriting the progressive media. That's a pretty good one. Yeah. Well, we're waiting over that, here. I, I'm sure. I'm, in fact, I'm sure this week when Nicole's not on, she's up with the with the Koch brothers, uh, yeah. enjoying their company <laughs> and uh, collecting money from them. Right. I'm in her house right now. At any moment, Ed McMahon will be knocking at the door. So it's like. <laughs> That would be wonderful. Yeah, uh, you know, but you notice that, for example, we could we could probably name a whole crew of sort of right wing dollars. But whenever the the right wants to accuse any of us of receiving some money, they they immediately grab for George Soros. And I don't I, I don't know anyone myself who's getting money from George Soros. The only thing I could figure is it's two syllables. They're good with that. They can remember two syllable names. Yeah, it's Soros. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I. Since we're sort of going, we're just talking because you and I have never actually met. I'll just yeah. tell you that years, some years ago, I tried to get a grant as being the academic and professor I am. I tried to get a grant that would enable me to develop a program here at this university in uh, sort of cultivating 
either civic activism or public intellectual life. Mm -hmm. And I wanted it so that it would be not exactly a degree program, but that students from any part of the university could take the program. And, and I'd already developed a couple of courses, but I figured maybe I could get some foundation to underwrite the project. Mm -hmm. So I wrote up a proposal, and I went to all the, you know, the seemingly liberal foundations, thinking they'd have the most interest in intellectual life, public intellectual life, civic activism. And one by one, they turned me down. And, and, and they were very nice about it, but, as, but, but they really, it was obvious they really weren't enter entertaining the project. They had a rather elitist view of how these things should be. In other words, if you were at Harvard or Yale or mm -hmm. maybe Berkeley out west, I had this feeling that UW-Green Bay was a little too proletarian for their, for their interests. So I thought, you know, screw this. I'm going I'm to see if I can get some money from conservatives. So the Bradley Foundation is headquartered in Milwaukee, and the Bradley, like, like you know, the Coors people and other people, they gave money mm -hmm. overwhelmingly to conservative causes. But they had a line on their foundation statement about wanting to promote civic engagement and activism. So I wrote a letter to the director, Michael Joyce was his name, I think, and I said, you know, our politics are decidedly different, if not hostile, but if you're serious about public intellectual life and civic engagement, then you might want to consider this project I want to pursue, which is not partisan, but rather this sort of, you know, open intellectual endeavor. And he came back and said, wow, this is really interesting. You should, you should definitely submit that proposal to, to the foundation, and we'll have you right up on the next uh, sort of list of short, uh, what do they call short list of finalists. Mm -hmm. So I did, and I got the university to help me to expand the whole thing. And I, did, I wasn't asking for a lot of money. I think at that time it was, I mean, it sounds like a lot of money, but it wasn't a lot of money in terms of big grants, maybe $150,000, because the university said maybe they could underwrite part of your teaching time, so on and so forth. So I sent it, and, and I was you know, thinking, wow, this could be great. This could sort of break the barriers. And they turned me down. And I, really? And I had to, and, I had a, and my, theory was, my theory was that they had kept me going and got me writing up this proposal at greater length merely to distract me from doing good progressive work. Yeah. That, that was their, their plan. And then I happened to have been friends at the time with a guy who I think everyone knows is a, one of the, the premier conservative columnists at the New York Times, uh, David Brooks. Mm -hmm. and, and, I, and I talked to him and I said, you know, I don't get this. And, and I said, I asked for $150,000. He said, the problem you made, is, the, the mistake you made is you didn't ask for enough money. Conservatives really? only give big, they only give big bucks. <laughs> okay. You should have asked for a half a million. Well, there you go. So there you go. You know, for there the next go. time now, we'll go for $500 billion. Uh, because you just proved the point that I've been saying for years. Because uh, Nicole has 30 years in the business, I have 25. And mm -hmm. as far as, and we're both uh, progressive Democrats. But mm -hmm. as Democrats, nope. The Democratic Party, DNC, since the 70s at least, have never, ever taken media seriously. The Republicans, yeah. conversely, oh, like a fiddle they play the media. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I agree on that. And in fact, but that goes along with my longstanding argument. I've been writing about this for, well, I think I've been writing about it for about 30 and more years. And that is that even as they don't seem to be that interested, you're absolutely right, in sort of cultivating public voices, mm -hmm. okay? And, and, but as well, they don't seem to be very interested in laying hold of and grabbing hold of American history. It's as if they want to turn their back on America's past, as if they're 
only as if they can only see in the past ugliness and 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 horror. Mm-hmm. And undeniably, our history is marked by t- a tremendous tragedy. But if you think about if you think about American history from the likes of Thomas Paine, you know, and you think about figures in the 19th century like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, the suffragists, and you think about uh, Frederick Douglass, the great black abolitionist and orator, mm-hmm. and you think about Eugene Debs, the great socialist, um, and I'm just moving right through history, as you can tell. Yeah. You think about all of those, those voices and all those arguments, and you think about what truly made America great, which was actually the struggles that went into realizing freedom of speech and freedom of worship and equality for women and the end of slavery and the rights of workers to organize and on and on and on until recently, right. of course, the equality of you know, gender and gender identity. And you think about those things, and that history is so rich and so ripe for Democratic politicians to embrace mm-hmm. and, to prom- and to promote in order to show... Them to, in order to show themselves and to remind Americans that truly, again, as I said, what makes America great is that history. Meanwhile, we've got conservatives who over and over again portray the past as, you know, the product of the acts of great white men, most of whom were themselves propertied, mm-hmm. um, some of whom were, in fact, slaveholders. And, I mean, over and over again, the right lays hold of the past and, and then perverts, hijacks it and perverts it. And meanwhile, liberals, leftists, progressives, and, and even radicals just fail to make the most of a history which would speak to progressive change and progressive action. Yeah, well, in, in addition to that, if, if they did <coughs> pay close attention to what the progressive media is saying, they would change their mind about uh, it not being profitable because that was, again, an alternate fact made up in the 90s. Uh, yeah, now I can t- there are some grassroots efforts of which will be interesting to follow and, and, and support. Um, here in Wisconsin, there's a, an organization that's developed, I'm pretty sure it's called Citizen Action. And what they do is they get people to not like donate a, a ton of money, though if you want to, that's fine, but to get people to subscribe to the organization and, the, and then develop local projects. So my understanding is, for example, I'm, I'm in Green Bay, and we're 120 miles away, but I understand that in Milwaukee a group is organized, and they're going to try to launch a progressive radio station. Good for that. And if you imagine grassroots efforts around the country doing just that, I know there are community radio efforts. We have these online initiatives such as, such as Nicole's. The mm-hmm. fact is the more, the more of our voices can, that can get out there, the more we can sort of draw away or magnet, you know, sort of bring in the folks who are somewhere in the middle and, and are looking for a more enlightened and more progressive view of things. Now you're speaking progress with a unified front, but the way uh, mm-hmm. the way Democrats are, uh, <laughs> high hopes. Yeah, well, you know, I, I have a really hard. I mean, I don't want to upset people who voted for Jill Stein or anyone else, yeah. but I've, I have. As a historian, I know enough about the, the, the state of American life, past and present, to know that third-party initiatives cannot work under, in the current structure. Um, they could perhaps, for example, in New York State, where you're allowed to ha- you can have a third-party ticket endorse a major party candidate, so the Working Families Party, and I know I'd vote Working Families if I lived in New York, but here in, the, in most of the, of the rest of America, Getting a, a third party to truly take off is is it's that's really, a fantasy. Yeah, it's not going to happen. We have to change uh, the DNC from within somehow, some magic way. Uh, w- w- yeah, I think it's time for actually. I think it's time for Bernie 
to declare in capital letters, I am a Democrat, and in fact, not just, not just stand there in a fashion so that Democrats can say, well, look, he's not even really one of us. So, you know, I think it's time for, the, for progressives who, such as myself, in fact, who've, who've endorsed in the past and, and support Bernie contemporarily, that we, we need to take more, more, more action inside. I belonged to the Democratic Party for a while back in the mid-2000s, but the Democrats were, even here in Wisconsin, and, and on the committees that I served on, were so heavily Clinton-oriented you know, Clinton that every time I spoke up in a critical fashion, I was chastised. So I said, to hell with this, I'll just operate as an independent intellectual, vote Democratic, and support the candidates in particular that mm-hmm. I like. Another wound that has to heal within our party. I'm a member of uh, two political groups down here, and uh, they're still split. They, they still get in a fight really? about oh, uh-huh. Bernie and Hillary, and if it wasn't for her, and if it wasn't for him, and uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I I get that sometimes on Twitter when I, you know, jeez, oh, you're right. You're it's, right. It's time to move on and let's start focusing on <clears throat> more important things like uh, getting this uh, Russian investigation underway and getting rid of the entire ministry. <laughs> <It's locked. laughs> yeah, I mean, isn't it? I mean, again, we're switching gears, but it, obviously. We're meant to be switching gears these days. Yeah. So, I, I mean, it's, it is fascinating to consider that the Republicans want to investigate leaks, right? Mm-hmm. They want to investigate leaks. Yeah, that never I mean, happened before. <laughs> I mean, they, they don't care what the content of the leaks are. They want to investigate, you know, they want to find out the, the subversives who are undermining the, the wonderful president we now have. Um, well, by the way, before we go on, I, I just want to thank you because I, I've been reading your book, uh, the, the, oh, the Fight for the Four Freedoms. Uh, and mm-hmm. You're one of those historians. Uh, uh, when I was in high school, I hated history like poison. Mm. Because uh-huh. those books back then, and I'm talking about the, the what is it, uh, Rand McNally books, it's the, the typical <laughs> whatever it was. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, uh, they would deify everybody. And, and when, mm-hmm. when you're a kid, you can see through the deification very easily. And then we have historians like you, uh, uh, Doris uh, Kearns Goodwin, who humanized these people because, hey, guess what? They were human. And when you, when you mm-hmm. see their flaws, like FDR, for example, uh, for the longest time, I didn't know he was in a, in a wheelchair. The books didn't tell you that. The, the books told really? you. Really? Well, no uh, kidding. I, I said that I thought everyone knew. Mm-mm. Amazing. No, and as far as huh. I was concerned, he was just some uh, sharp-dressed dude in the back seat of a convertible with a long cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> uh huh. Where where did you grow up? Uh, Westchester, uh, White Plains, New York. Okay. Well, we didn't grow up too far apart. I was mm-hmm. over in Jersey, so uh, oh, okay. At Paramus, New Jersey, to be precise. All right. Well, yeah. I, I I hope you're a little at ease with me now, because you must have been wondering what the hell is this person that uh, Nicole is going to make me talk <laughs> like. And no, I, I was. I I thought it was great, as Nicole said. Uh, Brittany is gonna is gonna take the show for a week, and she said, and she she t- you know told me not a lot about your life. In fact, I was gonna ask you if we could talk about you so I could find out more, but but she said she said he and maybe she was exaggerating to make me you know more eager to do it. She said, and Brittany said that that she would really like it if you would come on, and I said, sure, absolutely, why not? I told her uh, uh, what I, my exact phrase was: uh, Harvey J.K. is one groovy cat. 
<laughs> I like that. <laughs> that is great. He's totally I'm going to have to tell, have to tell my students, although that would make me sound old, wouldn't it, be, to tell my students? Yeah, I, don't that, put, that. <laughs> I don't put a year on anything. I just, whatever's good is good. And, and Louis Armstrong, uh-huh. to quote Louis Armstrong, because they asked him about in the 1950s what he thought about the up-and-coming rock and roll, and his quote was, if it's good, it's good. <laughs> if it's bad, <laughs> yeah, right. I go with that. <laughs> well, yeah, no, no, exactly, exactly. And um, you know, so I'm 67 now, and uh, I actually feel, in some ways, I feel younger than ever. In some ways, a bit older in some ways, and I feel both sillier and wiser at the same time. Yeah, it, it's. It, I don't care about the age. It's a funny thing. You can't label. And like you said, mm-hmm. you, growing up, <clears throat> when uh, CBGBs and the Fugs and all that stuff, the, the millennials, the kids, they don't know what that is. And yeah. I, I would say if I was a millennial, I'd be curious to know. I mean, when I was uh, uh, a teenager, I'm not going to say what date because I'm perennial, uh, perennially I'm 39. But nice. Uh, Good, Jack. <laughs> obviously, <laughs> I'm not this old, but... Uh, when some kids were running out and buying uh, uh, hard rock albums, I was listening to Artie Shaw. So oh, it, wow. It was just fascinated uh-huh. me about a time that I wasn't around in, and it's like an adventure almost. Is There's so mm-hmm. much to learn from that. And uh, Yeah, well, well, you know, it's interesting. I, as we, since all of a sudden we were throwing back into music, I can remember as a, I think I was a preteen, sort of very early teen, uh, listening on on the AM because nobody listened to FM back in 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 the, in the early six. I mean, it just nobody listened to FM. It was yeah. AM, and I remember turning the dial such and picking up. You know, two kinds of stations. I remember picking up. They were just fabulous. One were were the 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 black stations of New York City, mm-hmm. which which had which had the really good sort of sort of rock and roll and R and B and and jazz and all that. And I thought, wow, you know, how come I can't get this on these other things? And the other one was, this gives my age away, W, I was a W-O-W-O from Fort Wayne, Indiana, yeah. which had this really powerful broadcast. Mm-hmm. So, you know, nowadays, nowadays, fortunately, if you want music variety, you can find it any way you want. But there were times where you, where you had to search, you had to look. It's interesting how we sacrificed one luxury for another, because back then the luxury was the, a good music was provided for you. As opposed to now, when we have uh, online and uh, smartphones and all of this, we have more of a variety, but uh, it's incumbent on the listener to find it themselves, because it's not being provided on the air at all, and especially down in this yeah. market. You still have uh-huh. some radio up, up in Wisconsin. You still have some good FM rockers up there, don't you? I mean, they didn't take well, that away. It, it may well, uh, well, understand, I'm in Green Bay, so mm-hmm. you've got a choice of maybe sort of, con- you know, the sort of contemporary pop, Stations, and then you've got a lot of country stations. Um, it's it, I, I don't think so. I mean, it may well be that. You know what, Madison and Milwaukee. Maybe that's where that's where you're thinking of. I, I'm as I say, I'm up in Northeast Wisconsin. I, I love living here. Don't get me wrong. And I'm and I'm a huge Green Bay Packers fan. And for the last, I've been here 39 years, I guess. But uh, musically speaking, it. I remember when I first came, there were some good clubs that students would go to in the city. I don't know if they're, I don't think they're there any longer even. No, it's now you go searching on online and using apps and stuff like yeah. that. Well, in New York City, they still have some like um, blues and jazz clubs, but the, there's very few and they're extremely expensive. It's 60 bucks to yeah. just walk in. It's like... Yeah, 
Yeah. My, my, our younger daughter lives in, in Manhattan, and usually when she and her boyfriend go, are going to go out and listen to music, mm-hmm. I often find they're running out to Brooklyn to do it. You know, okay. something like that, because I guess the venues are less, exp- oh, well, even that's changing. They, c- they can afford to, to survive more re- readily than in Manhattan. So, uh. Yeah, the, uh, the Jewish... So, so wait, so Brittany, can I ask you a question? Anything. So you have your own, do you have your own show down in Southern Florida on AM radio or something? What's the... Uh... It's on uh, 95.3 FM, uh, 1470 AM, WWNN, The Brit Summer Show. It premieres every Sunday at 4 o'clock, and uh, you can download uh-huh. it for free. Uh, thanks to the uh-huh. generous donations of my listeners who make the SoundCloud available. Otherwise, I couldn't afford it. Ah, uh, uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I get it. I mean, I don't right. know if you've heard it or not, but it's one of those shows you tune into, and it's like, what am I listening to? What the hell is this? Yeah, no, I've never, I had never heard it, so I didn't. Know, that's why I was asking you about it directly. I just knew that you had a, a show somewhere, and I wasn't sure. Well, I'll be happy to send you the link with all the emails we've been sending each other. And, uh, well, real quick, uh, by uh, Progressive Voices, they don't like me. They didn't carry the show yesterday. So, um, uh, mm. whatever. Yeah, but do send, yeah, send me a link. I, if, if, Sunday, Sundays, uh, Sunday for your time, I'd be like three my time. Yeah, that sounds good. Send me a link. I'd be happy to, but uh, this week I'm going to just edit down these shows because I had no time to do a show. And, uh, oh, yeah, of course, with this, right. I'd, lo- I'd love you to have you on my show uh, w- at your convenience, of course, just to shoot the breeze, because you're so much fun to talk to. And, well, that's and- great. I love it. As a, and you can tell I like talking. So, yeah, let's do it sometime and as, when the spring comes or, or you know, sometime in the, next, some, in the next several months. At <laughs> one point, we'll do it. In the springtime. And as you know, I'm gayer than springtime, as the song says. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's good. <laughs> oh, oh one, one quick thing. Uh, the the yeah. um, about Aaron Copeland. I forgot to mention that he did score the film of Mice and Men, the the award winning film. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, if if we had talked about Copeland, I would have talked about my fascination for how it is that his music, as much as it's clearly an expression of the historical moment of the of the 30s and the 40s, that it that really really it transcends its time. And, and sometime we can talk about that, okay? I would love to. Next time we okay. meet. Okay. In fact, are we going overtime here? I'm just looking at my watch. We're overtime, and I'd like to I'll, uh, put it out to all my uh, affiliates that will be running long and, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, okay. whatever. <laughs> so, you know, okay. You're, the, you're my good luck charm because this is the first show I've done filling in where everything's working. So maybe well, you can hear it, me. And fortunately, you're willing to keep pressing buttons because I'm sit- as I said, I was sitting here. And you and you you ended up back on on the phone with somebody else. I even at one point somebody called in and and you said Harvey and I thought oh God it's not me <laughs> is somebody going to pretend to be me what, let's could let, this could be interesting let's listen. No, it was poor Steve Boone. I called him back about five hundred times yeah. in between. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that. Actually, I got to get going now. Okay. okay. All right. Thank you so much for okay, joining us. I got to catch today. up with a colleague. It's good talking to you. And I look forward to another time. Give my very, very best and a hug to Nicole. Absolutely. And if anyone's still listening to us, I wish all of you an early spring. How's that? Thank you, Harvey. And, and, okay, take care. Okay, you take care as well. Thank Bye-bye. you very much. Harvey J.K., ladies and gentlemen, and I thank everybody for... Uh, hey, look, everything worked. What a wonderful show. Uh, uh, Nicole is uh, in Mexico, as we speak, smiling upon me. So she's with me in spirit right now. Things are working. 
Oh, uh, thanks for sending uh, the, the chat has been an enormous help, and uh, I apologize to the YouTube chat because I have not been able to. Hi, YouTube chat. Thank you. I appreciate your support as well. And uh, sure is nice when a uh, when a, <laughs> everything comes together and it works. You can see how bubbly and effervescent I get when uh, things work nicely. Now uh, tomorrow I will be having. I'm going to have a. Uh, uh, listener phone in again because I, I enjoy hearing from you guys. She's got Nicole's got the best goddamn audience in radio. That's that's all I got to say. I am so appreciative to all of you in the chat and all who listen for supporting me. And uh, and thank you so much. I'm, I'm extremely grateful. And uh, you couldn't ask for a better audience or a better chat room. And uh, tomorrow we'll take your calls and then. Halfway uh, through the show, we're going to get Tim Canova. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, the illustrious Tim Canova. I, do, I don't, can't tell you how grateful and happy I am. What a difference from yesterday, where I was, in, I was having a nervous breakdown and almost uh, in tears. But this was great. And uh, I look forward to coming back, uh, filling in again tomorrow. Remember, Nicole Sandler will be back uh, on Tuesday to uh, bring everything back to normality. And remember, this is... Uh, TheBritSummerShow.com uh, that I'm on and uh, NicoleSandler.com and uh, sometimes Progressive Voices Network. This is The Nicole Sandler Show with Brittany Summers filling in on TheNicoleSandlerShow.com and the Progressive Voices Network. Remember, you can hear Brittany Summers every week on 95.3 FM, WWNN 1470 AM and TheBritSummerShow.com.